0: Want to turn to Psalm thirty-seven. We'll continue back with Genesis chapter twenty-two next week. Um, We have prayer at the end of our service. The second Sunday of every month, we have some of the elders and leaders come up at the end of service, and Justin will come back up and lead us in some additional worship. It's an opportunity for we for us to pray with you guys as a congregation and to lift up our own needs to the Lord, but also the needs of others and salvation. And there's lots of things to be praying for this year. Um, in regards to the season that we're in as well. So as you're as you're studying through this word with me this morning, Psalm 37, I want to encourage you to, to be mindful of the things that we can lift up together with you to the Lord and that you can come up at the end of service and, and receive prayer. But um, go ahead and put that picture up, if you will. This is almost like one of those pictures um, where you're like, what is that thing? So... Is that going to work? Neither? You got it? Okay, maybe now. Okay, Um, let me describe that to you. First of all, that blue thing is my sweat rag from the gym. (laughs) And that sweat rag is covering the display on one of the world's worst torture devices ever made. It's called a treadmill. And and if you look down, you can see the the treadmill part. But the thing that I want you to see, and it kind of centered it in and zoomed it in, is that red button. And that red button with white lettering says stop. Now I understand, well, I don't I understand the thought process behind behind why that's there, but practically it makes no sense to have that button there because if I'm gonna get tripped up and fall on that treadmill when it's running. Hitting that stop button is not going to do me any bit of good because I'm going to hit that treadmill and sling off at 100 miles an hour. So I think that the government's gotten involved at some point and put that button there. But, but I hate that button because I personally hate running. And I, I try to run every day. I try to run about three miles a day, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. Um, I, I, I like the way I feel afterwards. Through the process, it's miserable. It's miserable. And through that process as I'm running, I have to put that sweat rag there to cover those those numbers that tell you how fast you're going, how long you've gone, how far you've gone. Because if I'm not paying attention and I'll be running, I'll look down and I'll be like, certainly that's been like 20 miles. And it's been like a half a mile, maybe. And so I look at those numbers and I get discouraged. And not only that, I see that red button that says, stop staring me in the face when I look down. And you know what it's doing? It's encouraging me to stop. And that's the last thing that I need in the midst of trying to run. Because if you ever run, you know, you you, you get to the point, for me, it's always that first mile that's the toughest that first mile where my, my body's trying to adapt to the run and my lungs are burning and it's just, I'm, I'm trying to get that cardio part of it going for the rest of the run. And after about a mile, I get into a groove and, 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 and then my, my, I'm, I'm older than I used to be and my knees start to hurt. You know, you ever get that cramp in your side, that side ache, you know? And, and it's, it's painful, and, and I look down, and I see that, that button saying stop, and it's like everything I can do to just not want to quit, and to continue as the sweat's running down my face, as I'm getting hot, as my, my, you know, I'll be running, all of a sudden, like one part of my ankle will start hurting, so I have to move my foot another way as I'm running, and then, and then, and then my knees will ache, and, 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 and it's not enjoyable, I'm just going to say that. I know a lot of people like to run, they find some enjoyment in it, I'm not that guy. But the reason why I show that to you this morning, because to me, that's such a picture of how life can be. Life can feel often like we're on a treadmill. And there can be things in this life that discourage us. Red buttons with letters that say stop on it that cause us to want to get off of that treadmill and to give up, to quit. And I liken that sweat running down my face, you know, literally, and the side beginning to ache, and my muscles and joints throbbing, and the lungs beginning to burn. I liken that to sometimes the experiences that I have in life as I'm faced with different challenges, different trials, different troubles, people who are evil, the things that I see that are unjust or unfair. And, and, and really, I, I liken that red button that says, stop. To the discouragements of this life that cause us all at times want to give up, to quit. Maybe even in our Christian walk. And I love it that the Apostle Paul, he really speaks about this walk or this race that we're in. We've been talking about the walk of faith that we've seen with Abraham. And we've been watching this journey that he's been on. And Paul says, man, you have need for endurance. You have need for perseverance. Even Paul talks about how he's come to the end of his life right into the Ephesians. He says, you know, he says, I've run the race. I fought the good fight. And he speaks about this race that we're in as a, as, a, as a thing of endurance. It's not just getting on the treadmill, so to speak, and running for a couple of minutes and getting off and going, yeah, ooh, time to go home. It's about enduring through the, the the aches and the pains and the trials and the difficulties and the sweat running into your, your eyes and the, the, the getting out of bed in the morning when your body's aching and going back down to the gym and getting on the treadmill again. You know, this Christian walk that we're in, it's about perseverance. It's about endurance. And we have need of that. I I, I want to, there's like eight or nine treadmills like that at the gym. And, and I want to take a black marker to each one of them and write with Sharpie above it. don't stop don't stop and i give that to you this morning because guys psalm 37 is the don't really god's word in total and i'm ringing a little bit if you can pull me down some in the in the mains the the don't in the part of stop is the encouragement found in god's word and really the encouragement that i receive This morning, and and as I've been studying, I want to pass on to you, hopefully God's Spirit's passing on to you, from Psalm 37. To don't stop. To persevere. Someone here is feeling discouraged by life, circumstances, trials, tribulations, evil people, disappointing uh, letdowns of life. uh, Especially around the holiday seasons, because there's so many other things that go on in our lives that we reflect on an annual basis. And in regards to the holidays, maybe it's the loss of of, of a child, the loss of a loved one, a a parent that, that we miss even greater at these times of year that add to that don't part of the, or adds to that stop, but yet we need to be encouraged to don't, don't stop, don't stop. So with that, if you turn to Psalm 37, if you're maybe already there. And I want to put out, point out to you, let's, let's read it together. Um, I'll read and you can follow along. In verse 1 of Psalm 37, uh, King, King David, he writes and he says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious of workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you... The desires of your heart, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in Him, or also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. I mean, right there, that's, and He shall bring it to pass. That, that in and of itself is a wonderful, wonderful promise. That whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty you're facing, God's going to bring it to pass. In verse 6, he says, He shall bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as a noonday. So verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his ways, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and, and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Yet for a little while... And the wicked shall be cut off more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall unhurt the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the just. And everybody here knows that. Amen. And gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and they have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy to slay those who are of the upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A a, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the righteous and and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall be... They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordained by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old. And now, or he says, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. So verse 27, again, depart from evil and do good and dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. And do not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks justice. And the Lord and the law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Verse 32: The wicked watches and the righteous. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. And the Lord shall not leave him in his hands nor condemn him when he is judged. So Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. And when the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace." But the transgressor shall be destroyed together the future of the wicked shall be cut off but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord and their strength in and he is their strength in their time of trouble and he shall help them and deliver them and he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in you. Obviously, Lord, there's a there's a, 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 a one theme flowing through this whole message of encouragement to us, and I pray, God, that you would help us to take it in, to be encouraged this morning, to don't stop, to, con- to continue on even when when we're groaning and, and have complaint and things aren't going our way, or when people are seeking to take advantage of us or harm us for doing good. Often, God, that's the case, but help us, Lord, to trust in you, to rely upon you to cling to you to commit our ways to you again this morning in Jesus name we pray amen now as we as we begin to reflect on these these verses I want to just briefly look back to Psalm 36 and and, and you don't need to turn there but it, it was also written by King David but Psalm 36 it really sets the stage for what we read here in Psalm 37. And in Psalm 36, David was also writing about the wicked or the difficult things of life. And and in relationship to the wicked, what they do and the the evil that's brought forth into this world because of them. And in doing so, he was contemplating and he was asking this question of why it is that they do the evil things that they do. Why do the wicked do evil things? And he really pointed out that the root of all of that is, is founded or seated in the fact that they don't fear God. They don't fear God. And I point that out because that's usually one of the questions is, why did that person do that? Why do they do this? Or why are things like that? And, and, and it's rooted in this, in this basic truth that men don't fear God. I don't fear God. But in this next Psalm, Psalm 27 or 37, which according to verse 25 was also written by David, he says later in his life, he says, when I was younger, but now I'm old, he's, he's given us an indication uh, 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 that he's a little older, a little wiser, he's, he's experienced some things and, and he's seen some things and he's come to conclusions. But in this, he also asks a common question that is, I think, asked by many people. Many people who witness or 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 or, or suffer witnessing or, or, or witness suffering or they themselves partake of suffering as a result of someone else because of the lives and the deeds of wicked people or or, or people who don't fear the Lord. And it's 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 this question really of why do the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer. Uh, another way of, of saying it that that perhaps we may relate to a little bit better is is, is why do good things happen to bad people? Right? And, And why do bad things happen to good people? And the fact of the matter is is that all of us who believe in God and believe that he is a good God, a righteous God, and a just God, we've asked God this same question. Have we not? Why does God allow for the wicked to be successful and prosper when the righteous suffer? Now, you may have kind of heard that repeated theme as we've gone through this, but that word wicked is mentioned 14 times in these verses. 14 times. And it is the Hebrew word rasha. And it specifically refers to a person who is guilty of sin. Sin against God. Hostile towards God. And, and, and that, that in itself needs to remind us that even when someone sins against us, even when someone... Um, uh, offends us transgresses against us we need to remember that first and foremost is a transgression against God it's an offense to God and the reason why we need to remember that in light of all of this because it reminds us that God's invested in this thing too and he's a part of what's happening to us Rasha someone who is guilty against of sin against God and um Another thing that, that reoccurs in this psalm is this reference to the people who will inherit the earth. And of course we know that David was a Jew. He was of the nation of Israel, the king of Israel. And this psalm was specifically written in, 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 in context as, as, a, as a message or a word to the Jewish people. And so we have to keep that in mind in regards to these people who will inherit the earth. And it's a mention of inheriting the earth or specifically... Inheriting the land, that there's there's that's mentioned over and over and over again. A few times I want to point out, if you look in verse 9, it's mentioned where it says, those who wait on the Lord shall what? Inherit the earth. Then again in verse 11 where it says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And then in verse 22, which says that those who are blessed by God shall inherit. Inherit the earth. And lastly, verse 34, the last one I want to point out to you, it says, Wait on the Lord and keep his ways, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. And I point this out in significance to this psalm because the theological foundation for this psalm is rooted in the covenantal promises of God. That's huge. We serve a God who's a God of promise, a God of covenant. And the foundation, the very basis, theologically speaking, and there's application out of that for our lives, but the very basis for this is rooted in the fact that God has made a covenant. And that's what, what David's pointing out over and over and over again to the children of Israel. He said, God's made a promise to us. God's made a covenant to us. Likewise, we being New Testament saints, God's made a promise to us. God's made a covenant to us. And we've been brought in, grafted in, inheritors of the same promises. And God's faithful to keep these promises to us. And in other words, the instructions and conclusions that David comes to in this psalm, or that he makes in this psalm, it it rests not only on the nature of God or the person of God or who God is, it also rests in all the covenantal promises that God has made to his people, to you and I. And this covenant and the promises found in it there that David's referring to in reference to the land and the inheritance of that, it's, it's first in Leviticus chapter 26, but also in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 30. And you can read that on your own later if you'd like. But in both of those passages, God clearly said this to the children of Israel, that he was the one who owned the land that he was bringing them into, that Israel was to take possession of. And God promised that if they were to obey his command, that they would then be able to live in the land and enjoy the fullness of his blessing. But if his children refused to obey the land, he said, then I would chasten them, God said, I will chasten them. And, and bring drought and famine, that and if they continued to rebel against him and resist his hand of discipline at that time, that ultimately he would remove them from this promised place, from this blessed place, from the land. And even though God was faithful to discipline his own, it seemed at times to his people, like often it may seem to us, who are God's people, it often seemed to them perhaps like God wasn't doing anything, even though they were the ones that were getting discipline. You ever been disciplined by God? Yeah, you know how about your kids? You ever your kids? You have, you have multiple kids. One of them gets in trouble, and one of the first things they say is, "But yeah, but my so and so, I'm not the only one." And we're sometimes like that with God when God's disciplining us and He's keeping us in line and the children of Israel the same way. And 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 they were looking at the idolatrous people around them, the ungodly people around them, the the, the, the ones who were worshiping pagan people and and, and 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 it was like they were like going, God, they're prospering and you're disciplining us. We got drought and famine and, and yeah, they were they were they were only Receiving what God said they needed in that moment, just like you and I are in the moment that God may discipline us, but we always look around. Also, we have wandering eyes and wandering hearts, and we go, But yeah, what about so and so? Why do these evil people get away with these kinds of things, God? And I can't even drive one mile over the speed limit. You know, I may be exaggerating, but that's kind of the thought process and the whining and complaining that we go through. You know what? The prophet Jeremiah spoke about this at a time when the nation of Israel was about ready to be punished. In Jeremiah, we know that he was a man of God who served God faithfully, but yet, I mean, he had it bad. He did in regards to the way his own, even his own people treated him. And so he writes about this, and he called out to God with the same kind of thought process, a little bit of whining, a little bit of complaining. And in Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1-4, through 4, and he says this, He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but you are far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me, and you have tested my heart towards you. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, God, I'm nothing like those other people. I've done what you've asked. And so Jeremiah, based upon that, in contrast, he says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. And prepare them for the day of the slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of the field wither? Speaking of the drought and the famine, the beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there. Because they say, he will not see Our final end. Jeremiah knew. You know what it's like to have those feelings of first going to God and going, God, I know you're a good God. You're a righteous God. You're a loving God. But why are these people getting away with this? And I'm suffering. I'm going through a hard thing. My life seems to be falling apart. God, you know me. I do what you say. I go to church every Sunday. You know, We begin to quantify these things to, to as if we're going to bring forth our righteousness and our justice before God and call on Him to enact so that we get some kind of fair right treatment out of the deal, as if God's being unfair to us. You see, when David wrote Psalm 36 and compl- contemplated the transgressions of the wicked in light of their apparent prosperity, he, like Jeremiah, did here, and like we do also, kind of come before God and ask why. And in doing so, there could have been several things that Jeremiah could have done. There could have been several things that David could have done when he was faced with those situations. And you know what? There are certainly certain things, different things that you and I can do when we're faced with those same situations. We're on the treadmill, and we're getting faced with these things that come before us that says, stop, 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 quit, quit, give up, don't do it anymore. You know, and the first thing that David could have done is he could have got mad. You ever been mad when that happens to you? Yeah? He could could have got worried about it, about the problem. He could have even been envious of the wicked. You ever been that? Well, they get that and I don't. That's envy. You're envious of the wicked and their prosperity. Or he could have left the land. He could have simply separated himself from those evildoers. He could have given up he could have looked to also prosper by doing the wicked things in other words if if they're doing it i'm going to do it too right we begin to justify these things or he could have continued to be faithful to god and trust in god by keeping his commandments even when others were not and that's what we're called to do and these are the issue that David deals with in this psalm. And like any mature believer who has ever been through their own share of suffering, what we see here is that David points us and he shows us that he took the long view of the situation. That's what we need to do. Take the long view of the situation and he evaluated the immediate and the temporary that he was faced with in view of the ultimate and in view of the eternal. And, and he is encouraging us to do the same. He's encouraged us, the people of God, to trust in God, to believe in his promises that he has made to us by waiting on God. So as we begin to break this psalm down, what I want you to see this morning is there's going to be four encouraging assurances for us to hold on to in those times when we find ourselves questioning how God is running this world, how God is is how how God is doing in relationship to the sovereignty and His control over our lives that we've placed in His hands. As if we have a right to do that, but we do. God, are you sure you're doing the right thing? And the first encouragement is here in verses 1 through 11 in Psalm 37. I'm not going to reread that, but I am going to break it down and ask you to follow as I point out some things. And so the first encouragement here is, is found, and David is simply reminding us overall in relationship to an encouragement, the don't in the stop part of it. He's saying, God can be trusted. Guys, whatever's going on in your life, whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever unfair thing is going on in this world, whatever evil is filling this world, whatever those things are, what we can know is that God can be trusted. That's a word of encouragement, to don't, stop. You see, in these first 11 verses, David, he really gives us, if you want to look there and follow along, he gives one negative instruction in verse 1 saying, don't fret. And then it's followed by four positive instructions, four other instructions. First saying, trust in the Lord in verse 3, delight in the Lord in verse 4, commit yourself to the Lord in verses 5 and 6, and then rest in the Lord in verse 7. And we might take that word fret, the very first thing David encourages us to do, we might think that word means to worry, but it means, it means more than just to worry. When we look at the Hebrew word here, it's, it's, it's uh, um, kwaraha, I think that's how you, yeah, kwaraha. And it means to become angry with irritation. I'm sure nobody knows what, that, what that's like. To become angry with irritation, here's another kind of sub way of defining it. To burn or to get heated up. And so David's message in verse one simply when he says, Don't fret, he's saying, cool down or keep cool. Settle down. And the truth is, is when we see the evil things going on in this world, the Bible tells us that we ought to feel some kind of holy anger against it. That's right. And matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, that's what it tells us to do. But to take that to the point where it goes beyond that, to envy the wicked and the apparent things that they are getting away with or the apparent prosperity that, they are jo- that they're enjoying, when we're worried about it on that kind of level and focused on those kinds of things, what, what takes place is, is, is that it only leads us to fret, right? To get, to get out of that holy anger and into this ungodly anger. And fretting, according to verse 8, if you look there, what does fretting lead to? It leads to an anger that causes what? Harm. And David's argument for not fretting is rooted in the fact that the wicked are temporary. Again, a perspective of eternity. What's really going to happen to them? What promises has God made to us? And what promises has God made to them? And he says, one day they're going to be gone. Saying in verse 2, they're like the grass that is cut down and withers away. And when David said in verse 3, then to trust in the Lord and then to do good, what he's doing for us is he's pointing out that a fretful heart is really the opposite of a trusting heart. Okay? We can either have one of two hearts going on inside of us in those instances. We can either have a heart that trusts God or we can have a heart that frets. And the result or the fruit of each one of these heart conditions is equally opposite in in that a fretting heart lacks joy and peace, but the heart that trusts God is filled with joy, is filled with peace, a peace, the Bible tells us, that surpasses the understanding of the situation that we're in. There are times when I'm listening to worship music and I'm running on that treadmill, there's times when I'm filled with a peace, and what I mean is, is I don't, I'm not aware of the sweat pouring in my eyes. The aches of my muscles go away. And it's not because I've, I'm not hurting or I'm not in that moment. It's that I've, in my mind, in my heart, I'm in another place, even though I'm right in the middle of it. And again, that's just an illustrative thing to point out for us. This is what happens when we have a heart that trusts God. We receive a joy and a peace that surpasses the understanding of the circumstances. In fact, a heart that trusts God A heart that trusts in God is one that makes a conscious decision. There's an action that comes forth to get to that place, to trust. It's one that makes a conscious decision to meditate on on what is true, on what is noble, what is just, what is pure, whatever thing that is lovely, whatever thing that is of a good report, virtuous or praiseworthy. So you can have a heart that frets and what is it focused on and a heart that trusts and what is it focused on. But trust, guys, like faith, it's like faith, in that we'll only bear fruit when we're willing to act upon it. And this is why David then goes on to say in verse 3, what does he say? Do good. Trust means take action. Faith means move forward. And he lays out really clearly, he says, do good and dwell on God's, and feed on God's faithfulness. And the point is, is when we trust in God, we do what he commands. In spite of what others are doing, in spite of what we feel, in spite of what's going on around us. And this is, this is needed encouragement because at least it is for me. Because when I see the wicked prospering, you know what my temptation is to do? An eye for an eye. My temptation is is to return evil for evil instead of doing good. Or as mentioned earlier, we may simply want to leave the place that God has put us in. You know what? And this can mean geographically. It can. We can simply leave our city, our state, our country. It can mean we want to leave our workplace and find another job. It can mean we want to leave the relationship that we've been called to be committed to, whether it's married or any other. We can want to leave the land. But as is the case, whatever the case is, the answer to flee or to fret is not the answer the answer is to trust in the lord to do what is good and to feed on his faithfulness and david explains this further in verse 4 when he tells us this now think about this in light of feeding on god's faithfulness i like to eat you guys like to eat good food yeah well, you know think about that and then what are you going to do when you feed on god's faithfulness and then david says delight in verse 4 then therefore delight in the lord delight in the lord i made spaghetti and meatballs yesterday And I'm just going to brag a little bit. I do a pretty good job of that. And I was feeding on those spaghetti meatballs, and I was delighting in them. Think about that in relationship to what David's telling us. Feed upon God's faithfulness and delight in the Lord also. You know, that word delight, it comes from the Hebrew word agnog, which means to be brought up into luxury, to be pampered. It's a broad more experience to delight in the Lord, in other words. It's a luxurious thing. But notice that, that when David says this, he's not speaking about the things that God blesses us with. Rather, it's about the blessings we have in the Lord in Himself. It's, it's totally apart from whatever He gives us. So we can feed on His faithfulness and delight in the Lord and have nothing, so to speak, and have God who is Everything. In other words, we must look to find all of our pleasures in God alone. If we truly delight in the Lord, then our chief desire of our heart will be to know him better. If you delight in the Lord, you're going to want to know him better. Bottom line. So we can delight in him more and more and more. And that knowledge, that knowing is that experiential knowledge. To know the Lord. And God promises to always satisfy this desire. That's the other thing to notice. You're never going to come to God, feed on his faithfulness, seek to know him more, to delight him in and go, yeah, it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, you ever gone to a restaurant and looked in the menu and saw the picture and you'd be like, ooh. And, and it's maybe even a restaurant you always go to and it's, you always get the same thing, guys, and your wife's like, you always get the same thing. And so you're going to be like, you're going to try something new, Right? And and you get that something new, and and what happens more times than not? You're going to be like, oh. Or you're out with a group of people, a restaurant you've never been, and and they order something that you thought about getting, and you decided to get something else, and theirs come, and you're like, woo! And then you look at yours, and you're like, oh. It's never like that with God. You're never going to be disappointed. He says you're always going to be satisfied exceedingly and abundantly more than you ever hoped for, Or could imagine, you're not going to be let down in these situations. Delight in the Lord. So David in verse 5, he also goes on, he says, commit your ways to the Lord. And the Hebrew word here is the word gala. And it means this, listen very carefully. It it means to make gala, it's it's really, it's, it's a verb, Is what it is. And it is in the English here when we say commit as well. It's it's an action thing. And gala means to make a linear motion with a round object or a mass that is suitable for rolling. And you might go, what is he talking about? And it may seem strange, this word, in light of what we're reading about here, but really what we're seeing is that David's telling us to give it all to the Lord. To let it roll off of you and onto him. So here's this thing, kaboom, the stop. And what does David say? he says is gala, galah. Let it roll right off of you and onto God. Commit your ways to him. Or as one Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, he says, Cast all of your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And when we do this, David says here at the end of the verse 5, what does he say is going to happen? And he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring it to pass. What a hopeful encouraging promise that is. Now the reason why we're being told this in relationship to trusting the Lord is due to the fact that in those times when when we um tend to question God's handling of things in regards to the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. The truth is, it's usually when someone close to us is the one suffering or when we're suffering as a result of the wicked. We usually have a personal involvement in this situation. And when this happens, you know what? Our desire, my desire is for justice, right? I want justice. I want the wrong made right, Not only that, we usually want our righteous acts, like Jeremiah, we want our righteous acts to be acknowledged and maybe even rewarded. God, I don't deserve this. Check it out. I think I need a little bit of this. That's what's going on here, and that's what we're reading. But the truth of the matter is any attempt that we could ever make to achieve on our own these things on our own, a reward, a righteousness, a just thing, you know what? It it, 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 it can't happen. And when we try to do it, what it ends up being is a very burdensome thing. Not only because there's a certain amount of futility in it, but also because in it is a pursuit of retribution. In it is some kind of seeking or, 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 or pursuit again of vindication. You know, and the Bible makes it clear that these are things, guys, that we have put our trust in God. These are things that we've never been intended to carry those things lead to bitterness which is a poison But when we put our trust in God and commit our ways to him, he literally allows for these things to roll, to literally allow these things to roll off of us and onto him. You know what? We can lay hold of the promise that God says he's going to bring forth the righteousness. He's going to bring forth our righteousness, the right thing in the right moment at the right time. He's the one that's going to bring it to light, meaning to the place where, where all can see it says, God will bring forth our justice as the noon day, which is a specific reference to a time of day, right? A time of day when there's no shadow. A time when there is no darkness. A time where the truth can no longer be hidden or concealed. And in this place, David says in verse 7, he says, this is the place where we rest. It's a place where we rest in the Lord. And this too is an interesting Hebrew word because, in the verb form, it means it's an it's an it's a it's a active thing. It's, it's a present tense. It's it's to and, and it, what it really means is, is it means to be actively silent and actively being still, still and silent before the Lord. And what is being being described for us is really a it's a depth of surrender. Think about it. It's a depth of surrender to God and His will in His way in His control over the circumstances or the situations of our lives at that moment And, and as we silently wait for the God, for our God who is sovereign to do what He's going to do however He's going to do it. And in this place, you know what? In this place, there's no space for complaint. When you're Actively waiting silently and still before the Lord, there's no place for complaint. No space to give suggestions. Well, God, maybe you could do this. But also in this place, what God promises is says this is the place of peace, guys. That's what we're looking for anyway. We're looking for peace. So if we never learn to wait silently before the Lord, we can assume or we can expect that we're never gonna experience God's peace. The bottom line is, is when we fret and when we get upset because of the wicked schemes of the ungodly, what we're ultimately doing is we're ultimately doubting the goodness of God. We're ultimately doubting the justice of God. But when we count God as trustworthy by delighting, committing, resting, and waiting on the Lord, The promise is here, it says, you're going to inherit the land. You're going to inherit all of God's promises, meaning we'll receive everything that God has promised to us. And in verse 11, if you'll look there at the end of the section, David tells us for a second time, he says this to a second time, again, reminding us that God's a God of promise, a God of covenant. But this time he describes the person who counts God as trustworthy, as a meek person. He says, those who trust in God, he's sending, he says, they're the meek. And I like this description because meekness is not weakness. Rather, you guys know probably that meekness is power under control. So it's not a place of helplessness. It's the place of power. More specifically, it's a force that is under the control of faith and the control of God. And what greater place is there to be than that? In those moments. I don't have much time left. To go over these other three encouraging assurances that are found in here. But I'm going to touch on them for you to have. These things that we hold on to. That we can hold on to when we find ourselves questioning how God is running this world. Or when when we question how God is running our lives. And so I want to briefly mention them to you. And the second one is found in verses 12 through 20. And you can look there and see. And in these verses, David is pointing out to us this simple truth of encouragement. First, he says you can trust in the Lord with what you're going through. And the other thing that David says here to us is he says, he says you can be encouraged because God understands what you're going through. He understands. And this is first explained in verse 13 if you look where we're reminded and told that the Lord is able to see into the future and he says he sees the end of the wicked. We may not know what's going to happen, but God knows. And knowing and in his knowing he understands. Furthermore, if you look at verse 18, the same truth is explained conversely in regards to the upright when the God when it says that the Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. And both of these truths, God seeing and God knowing brings comforting considering we all sometimes wonder if God ever sees or knows what's going on with us, with our circumstances, with our situation, with our loved one. The suffering is a result of the wicked because in the moment, in that space, we can all at times feel like we've been Forgotten, but David says God sees, God knows, and David assures us that God sees and God knows. And furthermore, His knowing that we're being told of here, it, it's it's more than simply something intellectual. It's more than just what we gain from this knowledge, the seeing and knowing from reading a book. That's it's greater than that. It's it's a, it's it's deeper than that. And this is revealed in the following verses that follow, as it says the specifics of what God sees and knows about the wicked. And in the specifics, it demonstrates, this, it demonstrates the fact that God knows and he sees what we're going through in an intimate and personal way. And this reminds us that God understands. And in his understanding, it says that he's making a provision for our daily care for the future that we sometimes feel is lost. And if you look even further down to verses 21 through 31, we know that God can be trusted. That's what David says. He says that God sees and knows. He ultimately understands our situation. And in this next section, these other 10 verses, David points out this third assurance, and he he really expounds on the fact that God blesses his people. And that's encouraging because sometimes we get in that spot and we certainly go, whether we it's because we know who we are, we know our circumstances, we go, I'm cursed. I've been cursed. Not only have I been forgotten, I've been forsaken. And David takes it to this next place, saying first in verses 21 and 22 that the Lord blesses the ones who shows mercy and saying that they shall inherit the earth. Meaning even the, the, the wicked... Even when the wicked does things that affects our provision, things like he says here, not paying what they owe. He said, God will bless us. In other words, he's saying, God's the provider. He's our provider. he provides provide for all our needs. Then in verses 23 through 24, we're told about the blessing of God in relationship that it comes in the form of protection. So we have the blessings of God in the form of provision, but also David redirects our attention and go, God, is he not the one who provides? He's also the one who protects, saying that he's the one that orders our steps. And this word literally means to make secure, to establish. And in verse 24, we're told that if we should ever fall, even if we should fall, we're not going to be cast down. Why? Because God upholds us with his own hand. He protects. He provides Yet, perhaps the most assuring thing in regards to remembrance the fact that we are blessed, that God blesses us, is found in verses 25 through 26, where it tells us that along with the blessing of God's provision and along with the, the blessing of God's protection, we are given the blessing of God's presence. And David points out that fact, saying that he has seen it, seeing that the righteous have never been forsaken. God's always been with them. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's always there by our side. He's our provider. He's our protector. He's our ever ready savior who's there in our time of need. And then lastly in this psalm in the remaining 10 verses in verses or 9 verses in verses 31 through 40. The fourth and final assurance is accounted and it, and it brings with us really this, scent of, this, this sense of closure, a sense of finality to this thought of the wicked prospering that we can be so overwhelmed with in this life. Because these verses declare the fact that the Lord will judge the wicked and in these verses, we're given three images that illustrate God's judgment of the wicked, of the wicked those who reject him and rebel against him. Justin, we're going to close with this, so if you want to come up and um, get ready for the last few songs of worship in this time of prayer. And if you look at these, these illustrations of God's judgment, which give us this sense of finality, God's saying, hey, look into the future. He, remember, he started off by saying, look at the temporal in light of the eternal, about this perspective, looking beyond and into the future, in relationship to what God has promised and what God's going to do. And in verses thirty-two through thirty-four, what we're really given here, if you read through that really quick, is it's, it's it's this picture of a courtroom and where the wicked are made to stand before the judge. And God's really telling us, and He's reminding us that that there is a time coming when these people will made be made to stand before me and give an account and give an answer and God will deal with them in truth and in righteousness. Then in verses 35 through 36 we go on and it says that the wicked, it shows us that the wicked is uh, presented, they are being presented um, as being perceived as a large and a healthy green tree that has life and vitality. And I don't know about you guys, but I look at a lot of the things that the wicked get away with and the prosperity, and it, and it looks like they have deep roots, and it looks like they have branches that spread out far, so to speak, and there's a lot of life in them. There's nothing that can bring them down, nothing that can harm them, nothing that can hurt them, nothing can do to them. Yet God says when the day of judgment comes, this is revealed to be just an illusion. Why? Because there's no life in them, and they will have passed away. They will God says, as a matter of fact, they'll be seen no more. And then lastly, finally, in verses 37 through 40, it says this: It says, "Wait on the Lord and keep His way, and He shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. You shall see it." He says, I have seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself out like a native green tree. Yet he has passed away, and behold, he was no more. Then in verse 37, it says, Mark the blameless man and observe the righteous man, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressor shall be destroyed together, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in their time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them, because... They trusted in Him. And in these verses, the focus, in light of the coming judgment of God, it's on the rescue. It's on our rescue. It's on the salvation. It's on our salvation of the righteous that comes from the Lord. And in verse 40, it reminds us of this. It reminds us that the Lord does this for us because we have put our trust in Him. Father, I pray, God, that we would do that again this morning no matter what we're faced with, no matter what evil we see going on in this world around us or that's affecting our lives directly or indirectly. God, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged to don't stop. I know, Lord, that many of us feel like we've got the side ache and the And our joints spiritually are are, are aching and, and, and our muscles are groaning. And Father, we're longing and looking forward for that day when you come back to save us and to take us out of this earth to be with you in your presence forevermore. But I pray, Lord, that as your church, as your people, as your sons and daughters, Father, that we would continue on in hopeful expectation, trusting and putting our faith in you. And Father, may that even be exemplified this morning as we even come forward in prayer once again. Perhaps we've given up on certain things where we have stopped. Stop praying for someone. Stop trusting you to do a good work in something that we've given up waiting on. And so again, Lord, I pray that we would wait silently and hopefully as we come before you again and make our requests known. Asking you, God, to intervene in our lives, to bring forth righteousness, to do the right thing, God, as we know that you always do. Father, fill our hearts with peace as we again bring our request to you and cry out to you, the God of peace, the God of hope, our Savior, our Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys want to dim the lights back down, we're going to do a couple more songs of worship. The guys are going to come forward. I would encourage you, for whatever request you may have for yourself or for someone else, come forward in faith asking for prayer and asking for renewed strength from God who desires to give that to you this morning.